We still live in systems that one person or a small group of people are able to throw the whole world into chaos. There's far too much power on individuals, far too much power on elites. They still control our destinies. Die Kulturmittler, der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik. Hello and welcome to today's episode of IFA's podcast, Die Kulturmittler, the title of which can roughly be translated as The Cultural Conciliators. My name's Dan Wesker. In the past decades, the West in particular, the US, but also the EU, have promoted democracy and democratic values on a global scale. Recent crises, as we see them in Afghanistan or right now in Ukraine, however, have put the West's foreign policies to the test. And at the same time, we see some countries in Europe becoming less and less democratic. So today we'll have a closer look at democracy. What exactly do we mean by democratic? How democratic are the democracies we know today? And how can we make them work better? So we can achieve peace and freedom, as well as social, ecological and economic well-being. My guest in this episode is a specialist when it comes to these very questions. My name is Bernd Ryder. I am right now a professor at Texas Tech University in the United States. I received a PhD in political science from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Uh, in 2002, I got this PhD in political science. So I'm by training a political scientist, even though right now at Texas Tech, I'm in the humanities department. I've been living in the United States since 1998. And before that, I was doing um, social work in Brazil and in Colombia. In the upcoming edition of IFA's Culture Report, Bernd Reiter writes about foreign policy and the need to pursue it in a more honest way, opposed to the self-interest with which Western nations engage in the promotion and strengthening of democratic values in places such as Afghanistan or Latin America. But what is democratic? To start with the basics, I asked Bernd Reiter about his understanding of a functioning democracy or democratic society. The dominant definitions that we have out there right now that are normally used to talk about democracies rely on mostly fair and free elections and they rely on the rule of law. I would call this a minimal definition. By that minimal definition, we have, you can find this information easily anywhere, we have about 21 countries that are full democracies, about 53 that are, that are flawed and the rest are not considered democratic. So that's sort of the, the, the standard way of understanding it. So my own thinking about this is a little bit different. And I, I appreciate the question, though, in, that way, in the way you're asking it is my understanding of a functioning democracy, democratic society, because first I would say they are connected. I think it's not conceivable to have a, a democracy, a political system that's democratic in a undemocratic society. First thing is to kind of understand, okay, we, there is a connection there between a democratic society and a democratic political system. So I think that brings in sort of social factors into this definition, inequality, corruption. And in my understanding, democracy, when it really means or should mean rule of the people, we apply that definition, then we don't really have any democracies around right now. We don't really have systems where people rule themselves or where they have reined in state power to the extent that they feel 
in control of their governments and of their states, which in my understanding is the, the cause for, for all this discontent we, we currently witness around the world, that people feel like they live in a democracy and yet they have no real control. So in my definition, my understanding of democracy and democratic society then comes down to how much you know, control do people have over their own lives, over the laws under which they live, uh, how much they are able to interfere or influence um, the, the sort of systems that they live under. Self-rule. It comes down to self-rule for me. Right, because that almost answers uh, the next question, which is where do you see democracy's weaknesses and main problems? Is, is that simply the, not the people having the voice that they should have? You're right. I mean, the way I see this and the way I understand and interpret what's going on in the world these days, you know, be it just recent election in France or in Germany or here in the US, I think there's yeah. a lot of people discontent with uh, what they expect from democracy and what it is able to deliver. I think we saw also in the Middle East when at the time of this sort of the Arab Spring people wanting democracy and then once they have it, it ends up just being another system where you have at the end rulers who rule over you and then the only difference now is that, well, now we elect these rulers but once elected, it still seems that we live in a system of rulers and ruled and once in power, it seems that um, the sort of issues we have these days, from fake news to manipulation and um, highly polarized, ideologized uh, systems, in my mind goes all back to this this distance between rulers and ruled, this, this um, therefore need of the people who seek power to manipulate, to frame, to pitch people against each other. So I see the problem in the legislator and in the um, elected officials. A few years ago in 2017, Bernd Reiter gave a TED talk on this topic. The talk was called The Crisis of Liberal Democracy. In it, Bernd Reiter made very clear that we should not rely on going to the elections and then laying back and let others take care of politics for us, because representation doesn't work very well. He explained to me how democracy and the division of power has changed throughout centuries. So, you know, I look at the history of democracy and, and um, I did some studies and I started out looking at, you know, Greek democracy and how democracy then over time uh, developed that is institutionalized democracy. As of late, I have um, come to realize that democracy, understood as the Greeks did it as self-rule of average people, has actually a much longer history. It doesn't start with ancient Greece or classic Athens. Uh, it goes way back to, you know, hunter-gatherer societies who were um, egalitarian, most of them, and some of them, you know, to this day practice uh, a basic democracy without rulers, without strong hierarchy. So I think there's this history of um, how we have organized ourselves democratically as a, as a species that is really a long history going back to, again, before the Neolithic Revolution. And then only lately did we end up in this model of this sort of liberal uh, democracy, representative democracy, where it now seems that we don't have to do anything as citizens, where we can just sit back, relax, take care of our own private business and, and sort of hope for the best that politicians arrange things for us. And I think that model is right now showing that it's not working because they don't. These politicians don't always act in our best interest. And, you know, the latest conflict that we see in Europe with Russia 
attacking Ukraine, it's, you know, the first question that comes to my mind is how is it that we still live in systems that one person or a group of, a small group of people are able to throw the whole world into chaos, which to me indicates we still live in these systems. We have, there's far too much power on individuals, far, far too much power on elites. They still control our destinies. And I think that is a problem. And I think it more being the extreme case, but even in average cases, the sort of discontent that we witness everywhere, I think it shows us that this model maybe has run its historical course. How do you assess the EU from a, a democratic point of view? Well, there has been much talk about the democratic deficit of the EU, and I would agree. And I think the EU has brought great benefits you know, for Europe. I think the fact that um, people have brought down borders, there's increased mobility, all of these positive things, and taking out the, this conflict between um, nations that used to be so characteristic of Europe is now a thing of the past mostly. But at the same time, the democratic deficit is there. You know, I think um, there's far too much emphasis on governance, governance conducted by, again, political elites who decide things um, for the people and not with them. And I think, again, that's the discontent that I'm aware of. You know, people do not trust EU governance because most people don't even know who makes those decisions. Who are these people? Who are the politicians that are sitting in the European Parliament? How is it that they make laws uh, for us without us being involved in the making of these laws. These are sort of old thoughts. This goes back to Rousseau and folks like that who said, well, a law is only legitimate if you had a say in a democratic system, if you had a say in the making of it. But of course, in the EU, that's, there's even more distance between those who make the rules and make the laws and those who have to live under them, which is the average citizens. And I think that's a real serious democratic deficit. And... NGOs, um, civic organisations and cultural institutions like IFA, what role do they play in a thriving and viable democratic society? Right now we live in a, in a state-centred uh, world where all the power on the international scene rests with states. But by default, states have to pursue their own national interest. I mean, that's just also the nature of democracy. You cannot get elected to um, represent a country if you have the best interests of another country and their people on your agenda. So national politics on the international scene have to be, you know, focused on national interests. So I think that's when the when this uh, possibility opens up for organizations like IFA to step in because they are not driven by narrow national interest. They could um, even, I think, uh, work against this sort of devi oftentimes divisive framing that happens from the top down of interests, you know, it's this polarizing uh, framing uh, that pitches us against each other, that pitches different religions against each other, different ethnic groups against each other. And I think organizations like IFA don't, don't have to do that. There is an opportunity to do the opposite, to point out our shared humanity, to point out that average people don't really want war. Everybody just wants to live pursue their lives. And I think that's something that politics kind of um, worsens and, and cultural organizations can work against. And NGOs um, are problematic in a sense. They can be problematic because they don't have a clear constituency. They're not necessarily representative of, of, of anybody. They could also be perceived as interest groups. And we have seen this, uh, interest groups furthering very specific, very, very particular interests. But there's again, there's this potential for non-governmental organizations 
to operate not in the interest of one group, one interest group, or even one national group, but rather to to further dialogue, to further uh, respect for each other, to to highlight shared humanity, shared values, to promote democratic ideals. All of these things that governments say they do, but they end up not doing because, again, it's not sometimes not in their narrowly defined national interest to do so. Yeah, do you think there are some things that European foreign policy is already doing to include NGOs and international cultural organizations in democratic processes? I think we live in a state-centered world and non-governmental organizations are like an afterthought. And as long as we do live in a, in a state-centered world where all, you know international politics is really done by states and their representatives, I think as long as that is the case, non-governmental organizations become, like I said, an afterthought, a side aspect, or some sometimes a, a, a sort of a legitimizing uh, tool almost by governments. And if they're given power, then they can have an influence. I think we saw this, I remember 2001, the, the anti-racism conference in Durban, non-governmental organizations were invited in and the official discourse of, you know, there was sort of placating, saying, oh, there's no real issues with racism around the world. I think it was the non-governmental organizations who said, no, that's not true, and we have to address these issues. So I think there's potential there. But again, as long as we live in a state-centered world, I think the focus as citizens, our focus should not be on NGOs, actually, but rather on democratizing states and reigning in state power so that there's more direct involvement of people, of citizens, in their governments, and therefore in their states, um, and I think if that happens, then NGOs are not left to sort of carry this heavy weight with all these responsibilities because they don't have the funds. I mean, I worked as an NGO consultant at any NGOs, and we always knew stuff, but we never had any means to really achieve anything, really, and we didn't have great impact. Okay, well, that sort of leads on to my follow-up there, because, I mean, is, is, is that then the, the main problem, that the, the finance is simply missing from NGOs? There's several potential problems. We like to talk about the NGOs we like, but of course we also know that this is a this is a sort of wide and open definition. NGO can be anything. Could be just interest representation. We have some nasty NGOs and some nasty interest groups who promote hatred and xenophobia and racism. And they're also NGOs. So there is a problem of you know legitimacy and, and representation in NGOs. But those NGOs who promote human rights and stand up for democracy and democratic values, they certainly don't, in the current system, don't have the power, the resources, the influence, the access to change anything. I'm a member of an NGO that somehow belongs to the United Nations uh, about uh, anti-racism. I don't see that making any sort of uh, difference under the current structures. Okay, well, then... How could one go about improving that situation? Well, uh, governments leave so many things un, undone and, and there's so many, um, you know, with the internet being so open and there's so many ways to to reach people. I think NGOs who have a positive message can certainly smartly use that and, and, and reach people with positive messages and sort of contribute to a positive democratic culture of dialogue and respect and, and democraticness. It comes back to resources, what we're able to do as an NGO, what you're able to do as an NGO. Um, but I think there's greatly increased opportunities now, given the, the access that we have to, to media, to different ways of media platforms. Okay, one of your most recent publications explores solutions to 
save democracy and the planet from ongoing crisis, looking at it from an ecological, economic and social perspective. Can you name some examples of what you think will have to change to ensure our democratic future, ecological survival and fair economies? I mean, I've done some research where I collected examples across over the world uh, and also reaching back into history. So trying to understand how is it that, that people can organize differently in a democratic way, in a way that, that favors justice and equal opportunities. That was motivated by the idea that we always hear this, oh, there are no alternatives. This is just how it has to be. So I kind of researched and wrote a book where I forcefully argued that there are many alternatives. And particularly, I found it, I found very inspiring some, some indigenous groups who organize in ways that are not detrimental to the environment, who promote the participation of everybody in politics. Uh, so I included all these cases. And, and then I followed up with a, with a small little book. And it's, it's really based on the idea that on the one side, I think it's time to think about upper limits. We talk about minimum salaries all the time, but we, I think it's time to start talking about maximum salaries and how much wealth is enough, how much should one person be able to own and then pass on to the next generation because that clearly undermines fairness and equal opportunity. But it also is a major problem, I think, for the ecology if we keep on growing and if there's no, no end to growth. I think then we, we all know this is not going, this is going down the drain. I mean, we're systematically destroying our planet with this overconsumption. That's one thought. And the other thought is, uh, you know, I'm very inspired by the work of a colleague at Stanford. James Fishkin has uh, developed a polling mechanism. But I, in my mind, combined this with the American jury duty system to come up with this idea of legal duty, which basically means, you know, there's an, an old insight from the Greeks also, that sortition lottery for selecting people to do public administration, public duty is a better way, more democratic way than election. So I'm basically proposing that instead of having elected officials, we should think about selecting random people to be involved in the legal process, in the lawmaking process, which would allow them to become also more knowledgeable about the whole lawmaking process. And it would do away with a lot of the issues that we have currently with elected officials. In our last episode, we talked about how people can get involved in politics when we spoke about civil society in Ukraine. The Ukrainian civil society is very strong and has understood in the last decade that for democracies to survive in the future, people need to become active and take matters in their own hands while questioning the current system. At the same time, states need to understand that they work for the people, that states are a function of society, not vice versa. Now, looking at the situation in Ukraine, where two very different political systems are clashing, we see a crisis that shakes up all of Europe. I asked Bernd Reiter how this affects Western democracies and how we should be dealing with this. You know, I've had this discussion over the last weeks, of course, as I'm, as everybody else, I guess, watching the news and being horrified by the terrible cost of the, of this invasion to Ukraine. And um, I think, you know, on the one side, I think talking now from from a Western European German perspective should alert us and make us make us alert to the fact that our way of life is precarious, that um, this is just at our doorsteps now. I always thought that democracy and human rights and, and all kinds of other rights, rights for women, for minorities, for LGBTQ uh, rights, even animal rights, I think they are worth standing up for. 
they're worth defending. Uh, it's too easy to just say, well, we, you know, we, we want to enjoy these these rights almost as if they were privileges, but we're not willing to stand up for them and defend them. And I think that's what we're learning these days. We, we need to step up and say, well, if we want to live in this kind of world that we appreciate, we have to also be willing to defend it. Yeah, perhaps it will be a wake-up call. I mean, it's also an opportunity, you know, because I do think, particularly we've seen this under the Trump administration here with the U.S., you know, the, the U.S. on the international scene becomes a less and less reliable partner. Who knows if Trump comes back or someone like him, and then it's not a safe space to say, well, we're just going to rely on the U.S. to defend and stand up against genocide or stand up against invading uh, aggressors. I think it's it's really a wake-up call for the EU also to, to, to step up and say, well, we need to have a European security system, a European foreign policy that is distinctively European and not and, and, and consistent with human rights and consistent with the defense of democracy, way more so than the US has done and has been. So I think it's at the same time an opportunity to, to do that. As Bernd Reiter has pointed out, even when we rate states as highly democratic, we tend to settle with the minimal definition of what a democracy can be. If people had actual control over laws, decisions and developments in their countries, they would be more content. And that's it for today. For any suggestions, critique or wishes, feel welcome to email us at podcast at My name's Dan Wesker. Thanks for listening and take care. Die Kulturmittler, der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik.